and lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Welcome to Lit with Lloyd. Uh, I am your host, Lloyd Russell, uh, and uh, thanks to KCAT TV, uh, we are ready to have our next interview. Uh, tonight, we're going to interview DM Roll. Is it Raul or Roll? Raul, like growl. Okay. As I said, uh, we're going to interview DM Raul, uh, who has written a book, uh, Never Name the Dead. And a little bit of a bio here for, for DM. Uh, after 32 years working in Silicon Valley, and after writing award-winning independent documentaries, D.M. Rowell has written her first novel. It takes place um, within, within the Plains Indian tribe, the Kiowa. So we are certainly going to learn all about that. Um, and welcome. Thank you, Lloyd. It, it it's wonderful really, to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Thank you very much. Okay. I would like to start with your background in Silicon Valley. But before I do that, I have two very quick questions. Do you want me to address you as DM or Donna? Donna's great. Okay. And the second question, a little bit more serious. Those of us who are not Native American, how, how are we supposed to refer to Native Americans? Because in your book, and you know, it's all about the tribe, the Kiowa tribe or the Plains Indian tribe, but is that what we should refer to it or do we say Native Americans? Great question. Honestly, if you're a tribal member, the first and foremost would be your tribe's name, Kiowa or, you know, or Navajo or Apache. After that, growing up, we called ourselves Indians. That's what I'm used to. So I'm kind of trying to adjust myself to Native American. And I've lately started doing natives, which I think encompasses more people. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it's it's just something that we, we don't want to say the wrong words, and we know that there can be some sensitivity to it, uh, understandably. So um, I'll, I'll refer to it as natives. Sounds uh, great. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Uh, now we can get into the uh, meat of the, uh, of the interview. All right. So start by telling us your background in Silicon Valley. You've obviously been in Silicon Valley for several decades. Uh, how did that get started and what is it that you have been doing? <laughs> I've had I've been fortunate and I've worked in marketing communications and um, for me and I think part of it is a, my background being native is I didn't know how to go to college immediately so I've kind of I took a long way around to finally get my degree and get started and I got started in, when I was 30 years old with my degree and at that point business land was around and PCs were just happening <laughs> so that was my first entry into Silicon Valley as truly as it became Silicon Valley I got a job selling net, um, networks with business land because I wanted to learn about computers and within that I started seeing um, I'm gonna age myself macromedia 
was beginning to do, uh, Adobe's bought them years and years ago, but they were the first ones that I knew of doing animations on a computer. So I started seeing where life was going and I started doing presentations and just slides initially and working with um, usually Fortune 1000 companies, Intel and back in the day, LSI, Sun Microsystems. And I was working with executives developing presentations and their product launches and things along that line. And of course, we have a big uh, crash in the 80s. So then I went with a lot of friends and a handful of us started doing hand um, startups. Ah. So um, from home with my computer at home, I got to be the marketing department for several <laughs> startups and did that for several years. Wow. It, which was wonderful. You get to play so many different roles in a startup and seeing it get to that point of everybody's working hard, trying to name the company, name the product, find the niche for it. And then um, for us, we would turn around and try and sell them within a year to two years. Yeah. That was our, our game plan. So we did that for about five, seven, maybe even 10 years. Huh. And then I moved back into uh, Silicon Valley proper and started working with Cypress um, Semiconductor. Sure. And for them, I, I ran actually their video marketing. Huh. So got into that with the wave just starting where people were just beginning to use videos on their computer. And, and it was wonderful. We went from a website that was just a billboard to people coming because they wanted to see the how-tos that the engineers were putting, putting up in their video library. Uh, are you still doing this? No, now I'm just writing. <laughs> <laughs> I stopped about, actually, I stopped um, probably about four or five years ago. I injured my shoulder uh, um, because, unfortunately, Silicon Valley means 14, 15, 16-hour right, right. days. And I just blew my shoulder out working too much uh, with on the keyboard constantly. And I got an opportunity to kind of, redefine myself. What do I want to do next? I hit 60 and decided, you know, with the encouragement of my wife, she goes, what do you want to do? You've always worked because you needed the paycheck, but what do you really want to do? And it was, I wanted to write a book. Huh. I'd been wanting to do that since probably I was 12 years old and I discovered Trixie Belden <laughs> <laughs> and started reading myself. Oh, wow. Well, I, I do want to talk about the book, of course, uh, and that process. Um, but you're an award-winning documentarian. Uh, what kind of documentaries did, we, did you write and what does it mean to write an independent documentary? means you got no money behind you. <laughs> uh, every time I got laid off, um, just before getting laid off, I'd make a, a buy cameras or audio equipment or something along that line. And again, a separate group of friends, <laughs> we were doing, we all had video projects, documentaries that we all had passion about. So we would help each other. So I was the writer for a friend of mine, Deborah Wilson, who's done... Gosh, she's done four or five different documentaries now. But on her first three, I was the writer and producer with her on those three. Um, first one that went to film festival was Butch Mystique. And um, as she described it is she went to a conference, a, a, a gay and lesbian conference years and years ago. 
And she wasn't allowed behind this one door because it was for butches only. (laughs) So she wanted to find out what was a butch, what was happening behind that door. So she, um, we went and for about three years interviewed um, a lot of women that identified themselves as butch up in Oakland. And um, it won our first award, got picked up by Showtime and has been shown on Showtime several times and Logos picked it up. Then Showtime funded us to do a second um, one, so we did, um, gosh, Jumping the Broom as a documentary. So we explored um, what gay marriage meant in the black community. Ah. It was just really a wonderful piece in terms of the heart of couples getting to marry. At that point, it wasn't the federal recognition of marriage, Uh but San Francisco was allowing marriages. So that one got picked up by Showtime as well. And then, then they, it all turned around and we got to work on one of mine, uh, Vanishing Link, which um, I worked on probably 12, 13 years. Every time I went home, I'm from Oklahoma, ah. I would go and I would record tribal elders. Uh, the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation doesn't exist anymore, but we're all still in the same spots <laughs> that they planted us. So I was fortunate enough to go back and interview my grandfather, who was 98 at the time. Wow. First born to the reservation. I mean, if you think about the years, it's, you know, it hasn't been that many generations since the Indians were put on a reservation. So from him, he brought me to a lot of the other elders in the tribe, and I tried to approach each one as traditionally as I could, doing a sweat, doing a cleansing, to ask them to do the untraditional, which was to share their stories on camera and audio. And it was amazing. It was overwhelming how many of the, this, I did this when I was in my 40s, so it was 20 years ago, and everyone I interviewed was 80 to the oldest was 102 years old. And she, she was there. I, I would like to be as on the ball as the 102 year old was. Uh-huh. She, she, and what struck me about her was with all of them is they all had terrible ordeals being the firstborn on reservations and what they went through starvation literally to survive and they all still had such a sense of humor Mm. it was just amazing the level uh, carrie who was 102 she must have giggled every other sentence. <laughs> Even when she was talking about some of the terrible hardships, there was a period in time where to bring, we were one of the last ones put on reservations, and to bring um, the last band in, they had a pit that they called their ice pit, where ice would be stored during the summer. And they put a whole band of our tribe there and kept them in this pit and would throw food in once a week for them to battle over. Uh, And they were in this pit for several months before the band finally came in. Sunboy was actually the chief of the band that came in, and he very proudly walked in to surrender to save the band that was in the hole. Wow, And And she remembers her mother talking about it, who was one of the women in that hole for 90 days oh my gosh there's just so much history that isn't in our textbook 
that is and again it's oral stories so all of these elders were delighted actually that I had come with the camera and the audio because they're all recognizing that we're all separated now and the oral traditions that we had had for generations is broken and the only way we can preserve our stories is by telling them in media in the new medias now and one of the things I'm so glad about for me is I wanted to experience Vanishing Link to be as close to what I experienced as a child, hearing these stories from the elders. And I filmed everything with two cameras, one an extreme close-up, because the faces of these people are just incredible. And then the other one, you know, a wider shot. But that extreme close-up is probably used 70% of every shot through Vanishing Link. And, and when did Vanishing Link get published? It came out, uh, PBS published it uh-huh. actually in film festivals. It came out back in, boy, well, 20 years ago. Oh, so wow. it, early 2000s, just before 2000. And it, it, it did well? It, it did well in a small market. Uh-huh. It did well with my tribe. Uh, Smithsonian has a copy of it. Oh my gosh. Um, PBS aired it for quite a quite a while, but it never hit the market and didn't do well within the market itself. But, oh wow. You know, it did what I needed and wanted it to do. I wanted to preserve some of our stories. And I've got all this footage and now with the internet and now that I'm retired, I have hopes of putting snippets of other stories that I didn't wasn't able to put in Vanishing Link, putting those back up on the internet at some point. Has the next generation of you know the older generation from 20 years ago now, are the, is there is that still the tradition to tell oral stories and pass them down? It's certain until COVID. Uh huh. COVID has made a big change. But prior to that, um, for the Kiowas, and I can only speak for my tribe, right. but we have one big gathering a year, which happens to be 4th of July. And most Kiowas will try and gather in Carnegie, Oklahoma. And we have a, a big three, four day powwow that very similar to the time period of our old sun dances. And uh, then it's wonderful. It's like you, you get to see friends that you haven't seen in yeah. years. And, and you went back this year? I didn't go back this year for that. I went back earlier in May, just um, health issues with my parents and uh, family. COVID hit the tribe hard. Yeah. So I've lost a couple cousins to it. The tribe is just now beginning to recover and opening back up, actually. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to have to take a quick break, uh, which I'd rather not do <laughs> because this is fascinating. Uh, but uh, we will be right back. Thank you to the City of Montessorino for their continued support of KCAT Public Media. The City of Montessorino has enabled KCAT to inspire, educate, entertain, and inform our community through the magic of television and digital media for over 38 years. Thank you. Okay, and we are back with DM Raul. Uh, and now we're going to actually talk about her book, now that we've gotten some background. Okay, you said that you decided you were going to write a book. What actually prompted you to do that, and how long did it take for you to write? 
well, actually blowing my shoulder out and prompted me into becoming a writer. <laughs> and I started using Dragon for dictation as I started the courses. So I, when I injured my shoulder, I, um, I like being busy. I've always got something going, a project, something happening. So um, I decided I'd start a UC San Diego extension course on creative writing. Oh, wow. And I went in with somewhat of an idea of, of, of the book, but just no way, no idea of how to do, how do you do this? How do you get started? What do you do? And um, I just, I started with novel one with Carolyn Wheat, um, who I cannot say enough about. She's an author as well, but she's just an amazing um, instructor. Um, and their, their whole program, they have numerous classes, but they also have their, that runs through it, novel one, two, and three. Novel one being the help getting you started with your novel, two, the middle, and three, the end. And I started with novel one, followed her to novel two, and then ended up the summer course in novel three with my first draft completed. Wow. Yeah. How long did it take you to write your first draft? Um, from February to August 3rd. Not okay. that I remember. <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, I, I, that's not so bad. You know, in terms of some of the authors say it took eight years to, you know, to write the book. Uh, but uh, but you, as you said, you had a lot of free time to do yeah, that. I had the time. And you were laid up. So. Yes. Yeah. So it worked out perfectly for me. Yes. And, the, right. and the right instructor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I imagine it can be a little bit of a luck of the draw. Because I'm sure some are great, but don't ne necessarily connect with the author or vice versa. All right, so you finished it in August 3rd of what year? Oh boy, 2019. Okay, and from there, what happened? Um, I thought I was done. <laughs> I'd done what I wanted. I wrote a book, and I and I was and I liked it. It was pretty good. Carolyn told me that it could be better. And she worked with me until December through draft two and draft uh -huh. three to, to make it better. And then she kind of told me, get it out there. He, you know, start seeing if you can get an editor. The, you know, you need to try and see if you can get it published. So I, I just kept following her instructions. I sent out, um, one of the things she had told me is in forming what editors you want to send your book to, look at what you'd like to read and what authors talk about their editors in the most positive ah. of lights. So I went back to my favorite books and started pulling out editors' names. And one of the names that came up is um, Liz Pooley. Um, she is an agent for Ann Hillerman. So also in the same uh -huh. arena as yep, my yep. book. So I sent to her as my first one on my list, and then I sent off 10 others. And I, I got some rejections. Of course. I got a real ugly rejection, <laughs> which <laughs> for a writer, just any rejection becomes devastating yep, at times. Yep. And then um, just as at the point that I was going to send out to my next batch of um, potential agents, I got an email from Liz. And she goes, okay. I'm interested. I'd sent her 30 pages. Uh -huh. And she goes, um, and she's she's probably one of the oldest agents out there. She's, <laughs> um, but she goes, um, send me your book, and I'll read it, and we'll see what happens from there. So she finally got back to me around December. And so it took a year of looking for agents, and I got one in the next year, 2020. I got her as an agent. She started shopping the book around and... We got a book deal in September of 
2020. And then it took two years to actually get it out uh, into the public. Yeah. And then you do a year of practically editing with them. Yeah. <laughs> yep, with the publisher. Yep. Um, this next one is going, book two is going to go much faster. I've already turned it into the editor. Really? And they're hoping to release book two in October of next year. Wow. Okay. Well, that was one, certainly going to be one of my questions. But is, is it a continuation of book one? Yes. Okay. I, I pick up essentially five minutes after book uh -huh. one ends. Ah, okay. All right. Did you know right away when you decided to write a book that you were going to write about the Kiowa? You know, I didn't think about it as writing about the Kiowas. I knew I was going to write about what I knew. And that just happened to be the Kiowas and the and where I spent my so many of my summers and so much time with my grandparents and my, you know, I was very lucky. My grandfather's brother and sisters lived into their 90s. Um, so they were an influence. Yeah. And so it just kind of came out very natural that that's that's where I started and went with. Uh, when you when you decided that that's what you were going to do, uh, did you did you go back to Oklahoma to to start? Well, you said your shoulder was messed up, but but I guess you you had enough of your own history to be able to write it without having necessarily to go back home and and, uh, you know, kind of take a look at the sources. <laughs> I would have used that as an excuse, but unfortunately, <laughs> COVID hit about that time. So you really couldn't so anyway. I couldn't go anywhere. Any yeah. But you're right is I drew upon my childhood memories a uh -huh. lot to build the place, to build Oklahoma. I did go back in May, and it's funny, is so book two does have a memory jolt. You know, it made me remember quite a few things, and I was able to bring in a little bit more coloring, I think. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's tell everybody what the book is about. <laughs> that seems important. <laughs> yeah, it's a murder mystery, um, and it all takes place in less than 24 hours. Um, it's about a Silicon Valley professional that grew up in, an, in and around the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation area, very similar to my childhood. Uh -huh. um, she left um, the area, made herself um, a business in Silicon Valley, and one day her grandfather calls her and, and essentially leaves a very cryptic message of, I need you, I need you now, come home. Um, so she drops everything, even though her company is in the midst of doing one of the biggest <laughs> events that, um, in its history, what makes or breaks her company. And she goes to Oklahoma, Lawton, Oklahoma specifically, to answer her grandfather's call and can't find him. And it just kind of takes off from there. It's, I try to make it very fast paced because it all does take place in less than 24 hours. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. And by the way... I haven't told you this yet. I read it. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I also enjoyed learning some of the culture uh, of of the, the of the Kiowa. So that was a, that was a treat for me. Oh, good, good. Yeah. That's uh, it's nice to hear how many people do like the culture aspect. Yeah, and it did become important to me. You know, I. One of the things that, or why I did the documentaries on my tribe originally, is my grandfather happens to be the calendar keeper in our tribe. <laughs> so I grew up with a lot of the history that you're seeing and hearing in the books itself. But I also had 
a moment in my childhood. You know, my grandfather would roll out his deerskin calendar, and it's these pictoglyphs um, where you have winter markings and you have summer markings. And we st- start a storytelling from a specific spot on a pictoglyphs, and then everybody joins in, and that's kind of how the oral tradition or our chain of memories and stories go. After one of these, Grandpa is rolling his um, deer skin up, and I, I can still remember this so vividly. I was 12 years old, so 50 years ago. <laughs> but we were in his uh, living room as he's rolling it up, and my mom's in the kitchen cleaning up, and my Grandpa looks up and says, I just don't know who's going to keep these stories going after me. And then, you know, it's kind of like a moment where you just feel frozen in thought and he looks at me and he and the, um, the old indians will use their chins rather than point um and he using his chin pointed at me and said you you are next to keep our stories alive wow and i, I think if anything when you ask you know did i know i would put kiowa into it i didn't know i did would but i had to as well wow uh, have 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 uh, your tribe members been able to read the book? Uh, and and uh, are you getting what kind of reaction are you getting? Unfortunately, they haven't been able to read it yet. Uh, like everything's happened during COVID time. <laughs> um, my tribe, unfortunately, was hit very hard. The complex has been shut down quite a bit, mm. and it it just kind of seemed frivolous to try and discuss the book with them at that point, though. Now I'm beginning to contact them. And as you saw, I have an advanced reader's copy, so I'm making sure to send one over to the tribe. Um, they just had an election, so I've actually not met many of our chairmen or people yet. Uh-huh. I was uh, very close with our other group. So it'll be exciting to actually, I'm going back in November when the book releases. Good. And uh, one of the places will be doing an event with the tribe. Fantastic. Yes. What kind of population does your tribe have in that part of Oklahoma? We're, we've been a small tribe historically. Um, we're probably only about, I would say about 3,000, 4,000 okay. in the area. And has that been pretty much the same? Steady, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So you, you left the tribe when... And did you come straight to Silicon Valley? Did you come to school out here? Uh, what made you decide to to leave and come here? Actually, my dad moved us here. Ah, <laughs> that certainly makes the decision easier. Much easier. <laughs> we came early in my childhood. Um, much, you know, you, my dad is very much about making life easier for his family than what he grew up with. Uh-huh. So being here, he had a steady work, whereas back in Oklahoma, nothing was steady and everything was farming and very hard. But at the same time, when he moved us here, my older sister and I always yearned for Oklahoma. So summers, they flew us back to Oklahoma and we would stay with our grandparents. Uh-huh. So we had just ideal summers in Oklahoma, three, four, five years of that. And then my grandparents would come out here in the winters at times and spend a couple weeks at a point. Um, so I did most of my school here in this area. Um, I did a couple, I do spots of high school in Oklahoma and then back here again. Uh, is there any kind of negative reaction to, uh, to families leaving, leaving the, the, 
uh, Oklahoma site and moving elsewhere? That's a great question. I think there was a stigma of that in years past, uh-huh. but it's moved to the point of um, there was there there was thirty years of not having jobs in Oklahoma. It's only recently that the economy has really taken off and done well. Um, so there really was no choice of, you know, if you get your kids through high school and you're lucky enough to get them into college, there was no jobs that brought them back. But what I do see a lot of, and it's, I find very interesting, is a lot of Kiowas I know that are now retiring are returning to the area. And most of them are, a lot of them are working with the tribe again. Wow. Uh, is there, is there, are there jobs within the, 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 the tribal community? Yeah, there are. We have a tribe complex, the Kiowa um, tribal complex. And within that, we have our own government. So you have chairman, uh, vice chairman, and I think we have seven legislators at this point. And we have our own constitution. So within our complex, we also try and do, we have a center for the seniors and we have a center for the young. So we do a lot of focus on our, from those both ends. Are there representatives uh, in the Oklahoma state government that includes anybody from your organization, from your area? Unfortunately not. In Oklahoma, I think it's still hard for minorities to break through into the government. You're beginning to see more of it in the last four or five years. But I don't, none of our tribe people have broken through into the government yet. Did you, did you and your family experience any kind of of prejudice in this area? No, not in this area. In Oklahoma, I have. But in mm. this area, um, most people can't tell that I, I'm mixed. They don't know what I am. <laughs> and once they do, I do tell them I'm Indian or native. Uh, it tends to be more of a unique aspect. Uh. Whereas in Oklahoma, or I think any many of the states that have reser- reservations, um, you're frowned upon, you're, you are discriminated against. Um, I remember going, and this was in the 60s, there was a brand new Sears that opened up in Lawton, and so my grandpa and I went into to the new Sears, and my grandpa very much looks like a, an old Indian man. <laughs> and he wanted to drink water, so I walked up to the counter with him and asked you know, where the water fountain was, and the woman looks at me, looks at my grandpa, and then says there's a water hose out back. Uh, so those type of things, I remember those happening quite a bit through my childhood. And do you think that's still happening now? I think there is still a discrimination, yes. When you look at jobs that are available locally, um, if the tribes had not, the Comanches, Apaches, and the Kiowas have all gotten into casinos. The casinos are the new buffalo. It has put Indians to work. And you're, for the first time, I'm seeing a generation of um, my nephews even that are, they have jobs where they're not struggling from wow. year to year on keeping a job or hoping their place will stay in or doing farming. The casinos have given them jobs and the casinos are giving the native tribes money to develop other businesses. So cultural centers are beginning to be developed. Um, and jobs within that, you're seeing more of the um, the natives working their own cultural centers. Wow. So I'm very torn about casinos. <laughs> you know, I, I hate the gambling aspect, 
but I do see a lot of positives that have come from it, a huge improvement. More Kiowas, more Comanches are educated, college educated than in any other time. Wow. I guess a, a plus and a little bit of a minus, huh? But I guess that's probably true for many, many people <laughs> yes. of, of all different uh, um, persuasions. <laughs> uh, just a couple of very quick questions. Has your publisher, has your publisher uh, put you on a, any kind of book tour? Um, are they going, mm -hmm. how, how are they supporting you? They, they don't help with book tours. It's really pretty much up to the author themselves. It's amazing. I'm discovering so many things that I had no idea. I always thought an author does go on a book tour, but it's everything that you put together yourself. They support it as much as they can by getting books there or promoting it on their site and things like yeah. that. But um, scheduling things, um, going from bookstores to bookstores, it's, that's all put on upon the author. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's pretty common kind of across the board almost. Yeah, I think if you're not a Stephen King, yeah, yeah, you yeah. kind of have to do your own yeah. thing. Um, will your book be in audio or E? Yeah, actually, all three are coming out on November 8th. Fantastic. Did you have any any input in terms of your narrator? I didn't have any input other than they did send me the voice and ask my opinion about it. Uh -huh. and, and I actually do like the voice. Good. I think the voice of Mud is going to be nice. Good. Yes. Okay, well, I, this, is, this was fascinating. Uh, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for number two. <laughs> Thank looks you. Like, it looks like just, what, 13 months? That's all I got to wait. Yep, October. They haven't given me the exact date, but I just got that news that, yep, we're moving it up. Congratulations on that. Thank you. All right. Thank you for coming. Uh, that is going to do it for us for this episode. Um, I want to thank KCAT, as always, for their incredible support. Uh, and um, I certainly want to thank DM Rao for taking the time to come. Uh, we are closing the book on today's podcast, and we will see you all next time. Thank you. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org slash radio.